0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Providence, this is question number 12. We went from question 11 to 10 to 12 because your teacher skipped one unknowingly. Now we're back on track, hopefully. So the question is, what special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created? So we've looked at creation, we've looked at providence, now it's focusing in on God's treatment of the first man and his wife. When God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him. Upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon pain of death. So that's the question and its answer. And so as we've noted before, God created man in covenant with himself. That is to say, Adam was created as a covenant being. It wasn't as if God created man and then at some time later, he entered into covenant. He is a covenant being. The whole universe has a covenantal structure. The divine fiats, and again, this is a little bit redundant. We covered this, but it's important to go over. The divine fiats, and a fiat, you remember, is a sovereign decree by a ruler. When the king issues a decree, it's a fiat. He just declares it. You can't resist it. Divine fiats throughout the week of creation are characterized as covenantal words. God said, let there be light. That's a fiat. The sovereign declared it. And there was light. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Well, then later, if you go into Jeremiah 33, it says, thus says the Lord... If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken. Now, the reason I bring that up is simply to show that when God gave his fiat, let there be light, that was a covenantal act as Jeremiah pictures it, so that when God made man by fiat, it was a covenantal act. He created man in covenant. It was a covenantal act, and Adam, as created, was in covenant, which is what this question gets at. And he was to imitate his Lord in his work, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, filling the earth, subduing the earth, Bringing order to the world. You know, God is a creative God, and the Spirit, when he hovered over creation, the chaos, he brought order out of chaos. This is what God does. He does things decently and in order. This is what the powers of evil want to destroy. They want anarchy. They want androgyny. They don't want the distinctions that God brought. That's why we see these things going on in our culture. That's the nature of the prince of the power of the air. He doesn't like the distinctions that God's made. But God brings order. And so man must imitate God in his rest. God created. He rested. Man is to imitate God in working, resting. So he observes the Sabbath as a covenant sign to honor the Lord. We're made in covenant with God. We reflect Our covenant God. And so our Sabbath keeping, and we looked at this last week, our Sabbath keeping is in part a visible, public, believing confession that Yahweh is Lord. People have said one of the most valuable things we have is time, right? If you were told that you had 24 hours, you'd give anything you have to extend that 15 years. Time is a valuable commodity, very precious thing. When we devote a day out of seven, our time to the Lord, we're acknowledging that he's Lord, Lord of our time, Lord of our lives. So Sabbath keeping is a believing confession that he's Lord. It's also a blessing that God has given to us. Any questions on the things we've covered in this slide? Yes, uh, Jim? elaborate on breaking covenant with the day. Yes. Just a, a distinction between the two, but also what's behind that. Yeah, I think God, in, in declaring there's light, he is implicitly showing his obligation to maintain it throughout history. We see this reaffirmed after the flood. Uh, seasons, days, harvests, night, I'll keep these going as long as the earth exists. So I think Jeremiah is referring to these things as covenant. You'll notice it also says, My covenant with David. Well, if you were to look back at 2 Samuel 7, it never uses the word covenant. But it's a covenant. And so it's an odd type of way to to describe it. My covenant with the day. My covenant with the night. But it is a solemn commitment that God has made to maintain these things as far as history goes. You know, and so... Who knows? Maybe he will destroy the earth through the machinations of men. Maybe he'll use a nuclear bomb to bring about the consummation. We don't know. That would be kind of ironic that man would destroy himself in fulfillment of prophecy. But it will not be destroyed until God says it will be. So I think that's, that's one of the reasons why Jeremiah calls it a covenant with the day and night. Because a covenant is simply this, a solemn commitment with divine sanctioning. When we make a covenant with our spouse, for example, we make a solemn commitment and call God as witness and enforcer. If I break this covenant, he is the enforcer. You know, you may think the grass is greener, but don't break this commitment. So God is saying that I make a solemn commitment that day and night will not cease until time is no more. Any other questions on this one? Okay. So the covenant of life, the confession or the sort of catechism affirms the covenantal character of human history. All of human history is characterized by covenant. And you can think of two great covenants, You have the covenant of works that was made with Adam as the head of the human race, and you have the covenant of grace that's made with Christ as the head of the elect. So, all of human history, you are either in one covenant or the other, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not. If you're not in Christ, you're in Adam in the covenant of works, which has been broken, and you're under a curse. John 3, you're already condemned. If you're in Christ, you're in the covenant of grace, and you are an heir of salvation. So all of human history is covenantal. And both catechisms, shorter and larger, refer to the covenant of life made with Adam. And as we'll see, the reason it's called the covenant of life is because God offers life if it's fulfilled. The confession calls it the covenant of works, one of my professors liked to call it the covenant of creation. Any one of those three is okay. It all describes the same thing. And evidence for this covenant is to be found in the original prohibition, as the confession or the catechism points out. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Contrary to what Satan said, he said you couldn't eat of any tree no, you can surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's a very Hebraic type of idiom. <clears throat> it doubles it. You shall Dying you shall die, basically is what it's saying. I've used this example many times when my kids were small and it was wintertime. We'd go outside, and when it was really frigid, we'd say, it is coldy cold. It's coldy cold. And it's a Hebrew way of saying it. You double it. You dying, you shall die. And so the covenant, the word covenant is not mentioned, but we find that the substance of covenant is present. So if it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck, right? And Hosea says, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. So Hosea is is making a parallel between the disobedience of Israel, who broke the Mosaic covenant, and Adam, who disobeyed and broke the covenant of works. So according to Hosea, it is a covenant. What God did in the garden with Adam. There are two parties involved, which is always the case in a covenant. There is a stipulation regarding the forbidden tree. There's a penalty for disobedience And there's a promise for obedience that's implied. This is one of the things that we're taught, that whenever God gives a prohibition or a promise, the alternative is always implied. Thou shalt not kill. Sixth commandment. Well, that's the prohibition. Implicit, you shall preserve and promote life. Both of those things are included in the sixth commandment. The negative implies the positive. Likewise, the positive will imply the negative. Remember the Sabbath day. Well, it's implicit. Do not disregard or profane the Sabbath day. Same thing here. The promise for obedience is implied. Paul says in Romans 7, for example, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So when God commanded or prohibited, the implicit gift of life was there. We don't find the word covenant in Genesis 12, which is the Abrahamic covenant. We don't find the word covenant in 2 Samuel 7, which is the Davidic covenant. So just because you don't have the word covenant there, you still have a covenant because the substance is there. The reason I'm laboring this is because there are some very learned theologians who who say there's no covenant of works because there's no covenant in Genesis 1, 2, or 3. It doesn't call it a covenant. Well, it is a duck. It quacks like a duck, and it is a duck. I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. 2 Samuel 7 doesn't have the word covenant. Psalm 89 says it is a covenant. Are we all tracking? Anybody have questions on this so far? Okay. Good. If I'm too pedantic, let me know. The penalty of death for disobedience implied life for obedience. And in imitation of his creator, Adam was to move from work to rest. See, that was implicit in his creation. If he's created in the image of God, he reflects his creator. The creator worked, took his rest. The man works in reflection of his creator and takes his rest. Ultimate rest. Eternal rest. That's implicit. So entering God's rest and his confirmed glory was the implicit promise. If you obey, this is what you'll get confirmed glory, never exposed again to temptation and eternal life. But the condition, as we saw, was personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience. You have to obey. Adam, you have to obey. You may not eat of that tree. And so what had to happen, Now, this is where it gets kind of interesting, God tested Adam's loyalty by establishing what we call a probation so Adam could advance to confirm glory. What's that? <clears throat> well, man had to be given an opportunity to pass the test, And eventually enter the rest. There had to be a point in time when God said to Adam, okay, you've done it. You've obeyed my prohibition. You haven't eaten of the tree. Otherwise, it would just go on forever, right? Perpetual, always. To restrict him to mere continuation in his original mutable state would be a curse. If Adam, we say, oh, I wish I could go back to the garden. I wish I could go back to paradise like Adam.'" That would be a curse because you would be mutable, always in danger of falling. You'd never know for sure. Now as a Christian, we are in a far better position because we know we're safe and secure. There's nothing in this creation, sin itself, that will separate us from the love of God. So to restrict him to merely continuing in that state would have been a curse It would have frustrated his innate aspiration of entering into the Sabbath rest. He wanted to work, live his life, obey the Lord, and enter into that rest and enjoy God forever. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. There is this rest still out there for us. When you, as a Christian, die, you enter God's rest, eternal rest, rest in peace, right? RIP. That's true of a Christian. So the probationary period had to have limits. There had to be a limit to this testing of Adam, it couldn't last forever. It was not meant to jeopardize his blessedness. God didn't do this just because he was vindictive. God did it to allow for the confirmation of his glory. I'm going to give you, Adam, an opportunity to pass this test. And when you obey, I'm going to give you life. Let me stop and see if there's any questions before we move on. We're going to explain this more fully, but I want to make sure. Everybody get the probationary idea? It's a probation, there had to be a test. How would you like it if your test went on forever? You sat down for one of those three-hour tests, and you found out, no, this is going to be perpetual. Oh, man, awful. No, it's got to be a limit, three hours. Okay, I can handle three hours. It's hard hard to grasp the garden and the perfection that was there and acknowledge that there was a curse attached to it. So it's just somewhat... give us some time for this. Uh, right. Uh, I understand the beautiful state uh, between the free will, and given the charge that was there conditional. Uh, and I agree with you. There's nothing that says how long that test was going to be. It was only in God's providence. Right. But, uh, the thing that there was a curse and that there was something better. I don't, I don't think it was a curse, was it? Was it it, it would have been. A curse if there wasn't It would have been. End. It would have been as good as a curse. Yeah. Because if, he, if, if that testing never ended, then his innate desire to be like his creator and to enter his rest would have been frustrated. Right. There would have been an element of total frustration even in paradise. Yeah. But the so, scripture implied that there, there was a limit, actually, to the probation. Yes, so. and... One of the reasons we think that is because we find Jesus as the second Adam going into the wilderness for a 40-day period, right, to reflect Israel's 40-year wandering, but also to reflect Adam in the garden. The second Adam was tested, and there came a point. It's done. Satan left him for a more opportune time. But that victory in the wilderness by Jesus was decisive. Right in the World War II, I think they call it. um, There was a decisive victory on D-Day, but there was a lot of mopping up to take place after that. Jesus won a decisive victory in the wilderness. He came back, right, as the representative, being baptized. Our representative goes out there as the second Adam. He is tested for 40 days. We know three of them. But every day, I'm sure the devil was doing his best to sidetrack him. When he came back out of the wilderness, having suffered every disadvantage, whereas Adam had every advantage, the second Adam decisively triumphed. And then he went on his ministry, of course, and set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Nothing was going to sidetrack him. But I do think that in that testing in the wilderness of the second Adam, we find a parallel with the testing of Adam and the. Right. Right. Because always being in danger of falling is a frustration. It's like, who would want to live forever in this state? I mean, even now in our, in our converted state, we don't want this. We want to be in heaven with the Lord. There's a Sabbath rest remaining for the people of God. We want to enter that rest. So even, I wouldn't want life here like this forever. We want to enter that rest. Uh, Ward? Um, what, is the idea that the probationary period would have ended in this confirmation upon one, like this exercising judicial authority in rejecting the serpent? Absolutely. Yeah, we're getting there. Very good. Very good. That's it. Because God would allow this temptation. For this reason, to bring this probation to a head, we need to decide right now, what are you going to do? Here comes the devil, and this is the tree at the center of the whole thing. And you are to pronounce the devil condemned, which he didn't do. Yeah. Representation, the covenant was characterized by this principle of representation. Mankind would undergo the probation as a corporate whole. So when Adam was being tested... You and I were in Adam. We were being tested. He would serve as the covenant or what we call the federal head of the whole human race. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. He represented us. So whatever happened to Adam happens to us. And it pleased God to test mankind corporately as a race instead of individually like the angels. There's no representative for the angels. They're one and done. There is no repentance in the spiritual realm. If the angel sinned, he's kept eternal in chain, eternal chains in gloomy darkness for the judgment of the great day. So we're thankful that we have been tested as a corporate whole. If tested individually, the matter would have been unduly complicated and drawn out. Every single human being has to go through the test. That would have been hard. Fallen mankind would have no hope of being redeemed by the representation of Christ. If you think it's unfair to be represented by Adam, well, then it's got to be unfair that you're represented by Christ. If Adam's probation had been successfully completed, all mankind would have been secure. He was given every advantage. He was a far more capable and a far more trustworthy representative than any of us. Not one of us would have passed that test. None of us. And of course, the same principle is characteristic of the covenant of grace. Thank God for that the one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous so thankfully christ is our representative any questions on those those uh, principles okay good so the temptation As we said earlier with Ward's question, God intensified the probation by introducing two special features. First, he gave that special command. You can't eat of that tree. One tree out of all the trees in the garden was outlawed, while every single one other than that was available for his use. (coughs) Excuse me. It was the only prohibition since every other command was positive. Negative prohibitions never needed to come in until man fell you shall not kill. Well, man never thought about killing until he fell. The only prohibition was this one. Adam came face to face with the absolute lordship of Yahweh. No explanation, no reason given. You shall not eat of that tree. Simply on the basis of God's word. And Adam was forced then to admit that he was merely a steward. He was a vicegerent. He was ruling in the name of God on earth. He was under God's authority, but he was a steward. And his final destiny was set before Adam, and the stakes were high, nothing less than life or death, eternal life or eternal death. Those were the stakes. And I believe Adam knew it. That was the first thing. The second thing, God permitted the devil to have access to the garden and to assault the man and his wife. Satan denied God's absolute right to command his creatures according to his sovereign good pleasure. By questioning God's authority, his veracity, truth, and his love, he seduced man who was, as Ward pointed out, to distinguish between good and evil. That's a judicial function. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. <clears throat> Questioned God's authority. Who's he to prohibit you? Questioned God's veracity. <laughs> Did he, you, you're not going to die. God said, You shall surely die and his love. Are you kidding me? He is denying you access to these trees? That scheme, that strategy has continued for thousands of years. He does the same exact thing today. He tries to undermine our confidence in God's word. That's where it starts. You'll see the denominations that have gone rogue. It's the scriptures. It's the commitment to the word of God that is first to go. I remember having a conversation with a a mutual friend that Linda and I have who was raised in a Reformed church. Reformed Presbyterian church, solid. Married a Reformed Presbyterian girl. Went down to, I think, Texas for some grad work and became Roman Catholic. I said to him, what happened? We had this hour and a half conversation. He says to me, "Wow, well, when I let go of sola scriptura, anything's possible. He admitted it. I couldn't believe it, but that's what happens. You let go of sola scriptura, anything's possible. When the devil undermines our confidence in the word of God, anything's possible. This is what happened in the beginning. The tree of life was symbolic of eternal life and immortal glory. It signified and sealed glorified life, the glorified life of God's heavenly rest, and it was a means by which God or man could participate in this glorified life. It's an outward means that God uses for inward spiritual grace. Not grace in this case, but... So the covenant keeper was invited to partake of this tree and live. This would be the means that God in his wisdom would use to sustain Adam's life forever. We find the same invitation and significance associated with the Lord's Supper. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given to you. Why? Life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will live forever. Now, does that mean everybody who takes the Lord's Supper is going to live forever? No. No. But it is the means that God uses to confirm, to seal our growth, continuance, and life in Christ. When you take that bread and you eat that bread, remembering Christ, that is a means of grace. The Spirit infuses grace into you. I don't know how, but He says He does. And it's a means to promote your life, your sanctification, your growth in Christ. It's not just a snack. It's a means of grace. We're told in the larger catechism, they that worthily communicate feed upon his body and blood to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. And by the way, we have our union and communion with Christ confirmed. It's confirmed. If you have any doubts, seriously consider the nature of the Lord's Supper the promises that are made. It's an amazing thing. So the tree, likewise, was an outward visible sign and seal of the eschatological life for the one who kept covenant. If Adam keeps covenant, he can eat of the tree of life. What's amazing is, you see in Revelation, on each side of the river of life, 12 trees of life. It's abundant, and we can partake because we're in Christ. Obedience to the stipulation would qualify Adam to eat of this tree and have eschatological life sealed. And it's, this is substantiated by the parallel between the first and second Adams. Again, this getting back to Carolyn's question earlier. This, this first and second Adam parallel is so important. Blessed are those who wash their robes. How do you wash your robe? You trust in Christ. So that they may have the right to the tree of life. If you're a Christian, you now have not just the privilege, you have the right to eat of the tree of life, and you will. Any questions on the tree of life? Excellent. When Adam transgressed, he forfeited this promise. He had a natural created life, but he did aspire to a higher form of life, one of confirmed holiness, sealed in glory perfected in God's likeness, because eternal life is not merely endless existence. The damned in hell have that, endless existence. We want confirmed holiness, sealed in glory, perfected in God's likeness. So it's the joyful, never-ending fellowship with God in perfect holiness and blessedness, no danger of falling into sin, no danger of suffering the curse, no danger of being cut off from the Lord. And beyond that probation, then man would be confirmed. It would be a covenant ratification, rite, ceremony, sacrament. It would not be in my blood like we have today, but it would be in my obedience if Adam had been obedient. If he had been obedient, past the probation, like God said, he would enjoy eternal life on the basis of that obedience. You and I enjoy eternal life on the basis of the second Adam's obedience. So man's ethical glory would have been confirmed. We have the Transfiguration, which is a clue, that, that transfiguration of Christ that the three disciples witnessed, that foreshadows what we will be like, because we'll share in His glory. That's what it says. I, it's not my idea, that's the scripture. We'll share him with him in his glory, fellow heirs. So we obtain the right to the tree of life. I am the resurrection, the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he die, we're all going to die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So on your deathbed, that will be a tremendous promise to grab hold of. Okay, now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a sacramental tree of judgment. It's a symbol of man's covenantal and priestly duty. Covenantal duty, obeying God. Priestly duty, guarding the sanctuary, the temple. It signified the terms upon which to receive or to forfeit the blessing. Obey, you'll be blessed. Disobey, you'll be cursed. Some think that this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, imparts to Adam and Eve some type of knowledge. If you eat that tree, you gain some sort of knowledge. But if that were the case, then the biblical record makes no sense in light of God's holy character. Let me explain. The Lord God said, after they had eaten, the man has become like one of us. In knowing good and evil. So if if eating of the tree gives me experiential knowledge of evil, well, that can't be, because God knows good and evil this way, right? Adam has become like one of us. God is not sinful, he's holy. How did Adam become like God in knowing good and evil if it imparts some experiential knowledge of evil? That's that doesn't make any sense. God is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. So, if this tree acquired knowledge, signified acquired knowledge, why would becoming like one of us result in his exile? Why would becoming like God kick him out of the garden? The tree must have represented not something acquired, but something performed. And Ward was getting at this earlier. Knowing good and evil, as we said last time, stands for ethical and judicial discrimination. A judge renders a decision between good and evil. That's knowing good and evil. You're judging. Give an understa- Solomon prayed, give me an understanding mind to govern your people <clears throat> that I may discern between good and evil. That's what a king does. That's what a judge does. He discerns between good and evil. Guilty, not guilty. Good, evil. True, false. It's a judicial function. So at this tree, Adam would fulfill his priestly duty of guarding the sanctuary and judging the evil one. The evil one comes and said, oh, you won't die. Eat of this tree. And the first Adam should have said, "Begone, Satan. It's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Cast him out. The second Adam came, and what did he do? At least three times we know he used the word of God to resist and refute the devil and the tempter, and he left him. So, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam succeeded. As a priest king, Adam was to enforce God's demand for holiness. Do you see what happened in the temple when Jesus came? turned over the money changers and drove them out. He was acting as the high priest of God's temple, purging it of corruption, cleaning it out of all of this evil. That's what the high priest and priests are supposed to do. They guard the sanctuary. Adam didn't do it. He failed. Garden of Eden was the sanctuary of the Lord because where the Lord is present, that's holy ground. He was to declare God's righteous judgment upon the devil. He was to condemn Satan, clear the temple of all corruption. God does not know evil experientially, but God does judge evil judicially. And this is what Adam should have done. This was the probation. That was the test. Adam should have judged the evil one. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. in knowing good and evil... He was given the opportunity as the vicegerent to render judgment upon the reprobate angels. So important was this, that God threatened the curse for disobedience, an ultimate curse. Sue? I was talking about what you said about it not being knowledge, but something performed. Yeah. So the judge... That's okay. It takes us some time, you know. Uh, The judge or the king or the magistrate, he has the knowledge to discern between good and evil. Remember when Solomon became king? The two prostitutes come before him. One of them has a baby in her arms. She says, "Uh, Oh, Solomon king, we were both sleeping in the night. She rolled over on her baby and killed him. When I woke up in the morning, she had put the dead baby in my arms and took my baby. Okay. Solomon says, well, get a sword. Let's divide the baby in half. No, 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 no. Let her have the baby. And he says, that's the mother. Give her the baby. He had knowledge. He could discern between right and wrong, good and evil, true and false. So the judge has that kind of discernment and decision-making power and ability to make that distinction. That's what it's getting at, I believe. Because, again, if God says after man had sinned, he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God says, oh, he's become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So it is knowledge. Does that mean that God has knowledge, experiential knowledge of evil? No. If Adam became like God in disobeying, then that must mean if... if The previous understanding is correct. That must mean God knows what it's like to disobey. Impossible. It can't be something that Adam acquired because it made him like God. It must be something that Adam did that reflects something that God does. You see? The only way that Adam could become like God in eating and disobeying is that he did something he, made, he rendered a verdict. In this case, it was the wrong verdict. He said, that Adam, he said that Satan was telling the truth. God was lying. He called God a liar. That was his verdict. Well, it was wrong. It was sinful. But he still rendered a verdict. And that's a God-like judicial decision. That's how he became like God. He rendered a verdict. Totally wrong. The second Adam came along, rendered a verdict in the wilderness, and he was absolutely right. Be gone, Satan. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. It is written. So he did what Adam should have done. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's the curse. Eating from it, siding with Satan. He sided with Satan. That would invoke the penalty of death, and by failing to fulfill his judicial responsibility, Adam forfeited life and defaced the image of God. The earth that he was commissioned to subdue would now subdue him. Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. Everybody who lives under the broken covenant of works remains to this day under the original curse the only way to be delivered from that curse is by faith in Christ. Was that helpful, Sue, or no? Mm. <laughs> you know, but it goes back to the, when you call the tree of knowledge, knowledge. of good and evil, there's got to be knowledge there. Right, discernment and distinguishing between good and evil. It's not the kind of knowledge that, oh, now I get it. That's not what it's talking about. It's the kind of knowledge that a judge exercises when he distinguishes and renders a verdict. So from the bench, the judge will say, bang, guilty. He's distinguishing. He is knowing between good and evil. Now, in this case, Adam's knowing was wrong. He rendered the wrong verdict. But in knowing good, let me ask you this. Adam knew his wife very discreetly what does that mean that means he had conjugal relationship with her right it was an act he did something he knew his wife so let's get out of the mindset that knowledge can only refer to an acquired information it's more than that it can refer to something that you do a function performed And when a judge renders a verdict, he exercises the knowledge as a judicial representative, and he says, this is evil, and that's good. This is true, and that's false. And Adam, at that tree, said, Satan is telling the truth. God is a liar. Excellent. (laughs) Takes me some time. I get it. The severity of the curse underscores the gravity of the offense. He was to protect the garden against any unholy intrusion. It was an opportunity to exercise his godlike prerogative. This gets back to the whole idea of rendering a judicial decision. He was to cast out the devil and purge that sanctuary of all evil. And that's what Jesus did at the cross... And that's what he'll do at his second coming. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Finally, he'll be cast out. Adam didn't do it. Generations came and generations went. And he had free access, and now he's cast out. Adam called evil good and good evil, and in so doing, he denied the Lord, believed the devil, He broke covenant, invoked a penalty of death, had far-reaching consequences for his posterity throughout all of human history. And therefore, you and I, obviously, should admire the glory of Jesus, who as the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Decisive victory. Never underestimate what happened in the wilderness subsequent to his baptism. He rightly discriminated between good and evil. He fulfilled his priestly duty, and he aimed steadfastly at the cross. Any final questions or comments? Ward? Is the act of eating then sort of a, like an inversion of the sacramental of of life because it's embodying and participating in making that wrong judicial decision? What's the significance then of actually the That's a good question. I don't know if it would foreshadow the eating of the Lord's Supper. I'm not sure. But the idea that eating of the tree of life would be the means by which God would sustain and confirm eternal life. So I suppose eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you don't do this with the devil's tree. I shouldn't call it the devil's tree because it's not his tree. But you know what I mean. Yeah. But that's a good question. I, I, don't, I haven't really thought about that a lot. Very good question. Anybody else? This is a lot of stuff to throw at you, I know. Ruthann? Uh, we kind of wrestled with this at women's Bible study the other night. And I think what is tricky about these doctrines is that so many of them are inferred from the broader Bible and that there is so little that's explicitly in Scripture. So you can have read the Bible and studied it your whole life. But if someone hasn't pulled these pieces together for you, um, and even as you do it, it's still, it, I mean, rightly, it smells a little fishy to us because of so for sure. Like, is this, is this truly what right. it says? Because it says so little, of it's explicitly. Right. So I think this is why, I don't know, this is why I kind Yeah, it it, it, be you're exactly right. I think you hit the nail on the head that we have been raised, um, in the evangelical church to demand chapter and verse for everything that we believe, which is important. That's good. But our confession teaches us that by good and necessary consequence, we have truths. Trinity. You will not find that in Scripture. But Matthew 28, you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. So we conclude there is a Trinitarian God. You're right, though. That's very good. I think maturity as a Christian leads us to understand there's so much in Scripture that God wants us to dig for it like silver, right? Proverbs chapter 1. You dig. You go after it. You learn, and it's not easy. There are some things in Paul's writing that are very difficult to understand for even Peter the apostle. So you're right. Very good. Lynn? Excellent point. That's very good. He had to have some knowledge. He had instruction from the Lord. That's right. Yeah, that, that's a very good point. Excellent. He had to have some prior instruction. He had to know. So what is the, if he inquired this, you're right. Very good. Carolyn? Necessary to reject Satan. So it wasn't as if God just threw him like you said, and right. he, told you. he didn't yeah. tempt, have him tempted without the spiritual ability the right. knowledge to recognize Satan for who he was and that he was evil. That's exactly right, which is why Satan, clever as he is, came in the back door. Yeah. He used the one closest to him to tempt him, just like Job's wife, just like Jesus with Peter, he'll use those closest to us to try to tempt us. And sometimes they're just unwitting instruments. You know, Peter, he's a good man. So, yeah. When you think about it, Scott, it's just, it makes the fall, Adam's you know, sin, even more egregious. Yep. Because, you know, Eden was perfect. Right. God said, it is good. Right. So we know that he gave Adam all the ability to reject it. You know, he had no sin. Eden was perfect. And yet, you know, he still That's right. fell. And so we look at that and go, wow, he walked into it eyes wide open. His wife was deceived. He wasn't. You're right. Exactly right. It's incredible. Well, I've kept you over. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this inspired and infallible record of redemptive history is that which can instruct us and encourage us and build us up in faith. We thank you for the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom we have the right to eat of the tree of life. Please prepare us now for worship, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.